Welcome to the More Than Corporate podcast, where we discuss finding fulfillment, defining success, and living your best life. There's no roadmap to success, no one-size-fits-all answer to fulfillment. I believe it requires us all to be vulnerable and authentic about what we want to accomplish and have the courage to step out of our comfort zone to chase our dreams. Keep listening to hear stories from inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the More Than Corporate podcast. This week, I have a cool interview with Kevin Cornelio. Kevin is a coaching leader and founding member of Find Our True North, a head life coach and managing partner of Vets for Life, and the managing member of KC Singa LLC. As a coach, behavioral analyst, and therapist, recruiter, and manager who has always strived to achieve success for himself and others, he has maintained a focus on utilizing and expanding his expertise in creating, building, and maintaining wholesome, lasting connections. By providing genuine communication and understanding to his clients and team members, he leads and supports the accomplishment of goals with all-around benefits. Kevin and I really dig into some cool topics on this episode, and one of my favorites by far is his take on compassion fatigue. I think that we all run into this so much, no matter what area of life you're in, where we give so much of ourselves and don't take enough back and really need to figure out or get to figure out how we can balance things out a little bit. And so Kevin talks about what compassion fatigue is and some of the tips for maybe taking care of yourself to avoid that. I know in my profession, this is something that we talk about on a regular basis because of the amount of care that it takes to defend another person. And whether you're a mother, an attorney, a leader, you know, whatever you are doing in your career or life, compassion fatigue is real. And so I'm super excited that Kevin was willing to dig into that. Along with that, we really get into some other topics concerning stress in professions, particularly in the veterinarian profession, which is where Kevin spends most of his time and what professionals can do to really make sure that they have balance in their life. I'm super, super excited for you to hear from Kevin. Before we do that, I wanted to take a minute to let you guys know that I do have a couple of coaching opportunities coming up, both in a group coaching environment and in individual coaching. So if you are an entrepreneur who's just getting started out, kind of feel stuck in what you should be doing with your business, or if you're somebody who hasn't taken the entrepreneurial leap yet and you're wondering if there's a way for you to grow a side hustle, grow a better life for yourself, whatever questions you may have about whether you're living your best life and on your best path, I would love to chat and have a conversation with you about whether we're a good person to fit to work together, whether we're a good fit. You know, we can work together on finding limiting beliefs and really pushing through some of the things that might be holding you back that you're not even aware of. So if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in, go ahead and book a call with me. We'll have a conversation and see whether it's a good fit to work together. With that being said, let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Kevin. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited as well. So I met Kevin at Unleash You Now in November of last year. He was one of the speakers there, and I'm super excited that we've had an opportunity to connect. So what I want to do is just kind of start by getting some background. Where are you from? So, yeah, I'm originally from Connecticut which I live in New Jersey now, 
but I, I always like to mention that I am originally from Connecticut. I'm not one of these Jersey people by nature, <laughs> although I have come to appreciate it. You know, I think it's so funny that you say that because I feel like we're all that way a little bit to some extent, no matter where we're from or where we live, we have that tie to our hometown and we have to say that's where we're from. This is where I live now, but just so you know, that's, this is not where I'm from. So what took yeah. you from, what took you to New Jersey from Connecticut? Um, well, what does for probably many guys, a girl, we actually met in Connecticut, my wife and I, and we met at UConn where um, she had come from New Jersey where she grew up to go to school. And I had ventured about an hour or so from home, which is quite far enough for me. And um, yeah, we met there and we ended up going uh, to Massachusetts for a few years after we graduated, eventually coming down here to Jersey. That's awesome. And I know um, we're going to get into a lot of what you do now and your speaking and coaching stuff, but um, what did you go to school for at UConn? Yeah, so initially I went to school for, uh, I didn't even know, I was undecided for a couple of years. <laughs> I ended up majoring in psychology, which made a lot of sense and I probably would have pursued more uh, more intentionally if I had been exposed to it earlier. It was never something that was offered in my high school or anything growing up. Um, and once I started taking uh, basic courses, intro courses in gen eds, uh, my first year, I pretty much quickly gravitated towards my psychology classes and knew that what I was going to do. I just took me a while to figure out what I was going to do with it. But you can say in some ways I'm still figuring out how to apply what I, what I learned with it. But um, that's what I ended up majoring in is psychology. And um, I think it's interesting that you say you're still trying to figure out how to apply it. And I just want to hit on that for just a minute because in sure. everything that we do, it seems like we all think there's this time where we're just going to have it figured out. And I think it's really cool that you mentioned that, you know, we just don't like we're all doing this trial by error thing called life and figuring out what our best path is. Yeah, well said. And especially when you say trial and error, I mean, that's a big fundamental component of psychology and some of the ways I have used it being, uh, for instance, uh, for a short time, an ABA therapist applied behavioral analysis for children. Uh, trial and error was a, a big component of the job. And really, you know, children to adult, that's what we're always doing in life. And that's how I view it and how I live it. And I think we all kind of do consciously or unconsciously. So it's, uh, it's a good uh, concept to bring in here because it's just, it's really just a continuous effort of learning and progress for all of us in life. And that's where psychology for me, when, when I found the study of it, it was more just kind of studying what we'd all always been doing in my perception of it. So it was just kind of a continuation of learning with the new framework. I love it. And what did your wife go to school for? Was she in psychology as well? No, um, not, not directly. Um, she actually had a lot of interest in the field, but she was set very early on, way before I met her, on being a veterinarian. That's awesome. And she is she still a veterinarian? Does she do that now? Yeah, she she does, and that's kind of a huge part of my story. Um, when we met and eventually, you know, became closer and, and got together, um, she was well on her journey. She actually came to UConn specifically because of the farms and the access to animals that we had in Stores, Connecticut, which is basically in the middle of nothing but farmland. And um, one of the reasons that I almost didn't go there 
uh, was the main reason she did. And um, yeah, she, she wanted to be a vet since she was maybe younger. And she was, you know, in the backyard playing with worms and other uh, critters and sorts. That's awesome. Now, that's an interesting concept because you said that your wife knew what she wanted to be from a super young age and you went into college still trying to figure it out. Did you have mm-hmm. an idea of what you wanted to be as a kid? Like, did you have this, this is what I want to be when I grow up moment? You know, um, it's a good question. I actually thought about this a little bit recently and I grew up having very few but very strong interests in specific things like sports were always huge in my life. I think actually the day I was born, my dad said the first thing he did when holding me is sit down in front of the all-star game that was being played, the MLB all-star game. So I was literally kind of groomed from birth to be a sports fan and uh, have always loved athletics and sports. But being, um, you know, the height, build, and et cetera that I am, I was never like a natural athlete. So that wasn't really a, a logical path for me to go playing in the NBA at, you know, five, eight or so wasn't pretty likely to occur uh so I had that in in the back of my mind it's doing something related to sports and that's where kind of coaching nowadays comes into play I was always active in um coaching you know mentoring and uh working at camps and things like that so I always had that in mind of doing something related to athletics um aside from that I I always had a, a small and kind of uncultivated passion for things like music and, you know, a little bit of the art side. Um, but again, all these things were kind of so far out of my, my field of vision of being realistic. I didn't really have a real tangible goal or dream, so to speak, from like a professional standpoint. And that's kind of where the undecided comes into play. So it's interesting that you say that because I was recently in a conversation with somebody and I asked her, like she said she was pre-law and she ended up going into photography. And I said, what made you switch? And she said, nobody ever told me I could make money in the arts. And this sounds a lot like what you're talking about. Like you have all these interests and we grew up in a time where nobody thought that was a viable career. Was that kind of what you were feeling or was it something different? Yeah, in a way. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting story um, you bring in there because I think a lot of people, unfortunately, because I've always loved the arts, but kind of loved from afar. Um, and I always respected and admired people who were super creative and artistic. My brother is one of those people. He and I uh, kind of represent very different ends of the spectrum. I've always loved that and appreciate it more so um, throughout our lives. But for me, I was never, I was never trying that hard to go in a creative artistic direction. It was just, I was so kind of, kind of logical and analytical so early on in my life. I was actually, it's funny, at a young age, there was talk between, you know, me and my mom and a few other people of me becoming a lawyer uh, because I had such a penchant for communication and building arguments and, you know, other things related to uh, that type of career passing reasonable, so to speak. So I had kind of big interests in different areas. And that's the thing I had kind of passing interests, but nothing really grabbed me and took hold. Got it. So you go to school and you go to school for psychology. What was your career life like after you graduated from school with your psychology degree? Uh, so um, that's where things get um, interesting in a different way because going into, so to, to backtrack a little before I graduated, when I did decide um, 
right under the deadline, forcibly so, because you can only be undecided so long to actually declare a major. So when I did declare in psychology, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do with it in particular. You know, the, the standard routes are becoming a counselor and therapist, um, you know, and whether in a, an office setting, in a school setting. And again, those were kind of passing interests or options that made sense. Um, what I really, I think early on, I tried to tie in the sports angle more than anything and look into being a sports psychologist. But kind of the theme here, I think, with a lot of things I considered, there were just so many kind of logical barriers to entry. And I will say I was, I was not, I didn't kind of hold myself to the standard of dedication in pursuit of those things that I knew it would take. It was just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally passionate and invested to the point where I know I want to do this for years and years. So I'm not going to start the journey that I know is a, you know, worthwhile, but arduous journey. You know, I'm going to keep considering my options until I kind of find that thing, that, that calling of mine. That's an amazing point. And I feel like it's something that we should expand on a little bit because I know I, people hear me talk about it all the time, but we, we have this assembly line or conveyor belt idea for education. And I think it's changing a little bit now, but definitely in the past where it was like you go to college or you go to high school, you go to college, you figure things out while you're in college and then you get a, a job. And what's missing in that equation is everything that you just said about making sure that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and not investing your time and dollars on um, something that you don't even know if you're going to want to do. Yeah, I like the way you put that because I was very, very slow to invest um, throughout most of my life, which has changed. Um, and I can more, you know, get back to answering your question too that you posed of after college. That's when things started to change a lot in terms of my approach, um, somewhat not by, by choice, um, because this is where my wife's situation ties in. When we, when we were, you know, ready to graduate at that point, I mean, she again had a very specific path she was driven on and it's such a, a difficult path to really have much control over. I mean, being a veterinarian, or even becoming a veterinarian, it, there are fewer than 30 schools in the country for veterinarians. It's harder to get into than medical school. Wow. Um, yeah, a lot of people are actually surprised here and it, it's, this ties in a lot with what I'm doing now, which I'm sure we'll get to of um, hearing, you know, my coaching and a lot of my work towards the veterinary industry because there is such a high amount of stress and pressure and anxiety um, that comes along with the whole path. Um, so I kind of tied my journey to hers more than anything, knowing that she had this clear direction she was going and there were so many hurdles, you know, talk about barriers to entry. There are barriers kind of at every checkpoint. Um, and I saw that I, you know, had the opportunity to support her with that without really perceptively influencing, you know, anything I might do because I was on such a general track that still wasn't focused. I could kind of figure out my stuff along the way. So I kind of just decided, you know, when we were ready to leave school, I was going to go where she got into school, you know, she ended up getting into a couple, but it's, you know, never guaranteed at all. And when it is, it's like you go where, where you got to go to get the, the veterinary degree. Absolutely. So I basically decided to go along with her and figure out my, my way from there. That's awesome. So where did, um, where did she end up going to veterinarian school? 
So for a brief time, we, we were preparing mentally to go to Iowa because that was the first school she got into. And nothing at Iowa, but it was very far in many ways from anything that we knew. And so we were a little relieved when she got into Tufts in Massachusetts. And um, both being from the East Coast, that was uh, an easier pill to swallow, especially for our families. We we're both very close to them. That's um, amazing. So we went to Massachusetts, yeah, for the four years after uh, undergrad when she was completing her so I'm interested to get into um, what, well, first of all, you've got this degree in psychology and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with it. When did this idea of coaching actually take form? I know that you have your certification and, and there was a lot of learning and education that goes around being able to actually take the knowledge you have in a psychology degree and put it into practical yeah, um, so. for learning. So how did that come about? Um, not until more recently, you know, in the last few years, actually. Um, for half, if not the majority of my career, coaching wasn't even really a consideration on the table, other than, again, tying back to the sports-related coaching, um, which I'd always had a passion and interest uh, for. But early on, coming out of school, I kind of looked at the landscape of options. And with psychology, you know, in, in this sense and in many other senses, it's kind of like, almost anything is an option that it applies to. And at the same time, almost nothing is an easy option to apply to. So I looked at the jobs out there, just, you know, going on Indeed, CareerBuilder, the job boards, and I would see, you know, what's, what's open to somebody with just a, a bachelor's in psychology and no other discernible, you know, specifications or further degrees or anything like that. And it was a lot of sales jobs. And basically that was the core uh, landscape that that did open itself up to people's psychology backgrounds to easily easily step into, and so I had this thought still in mind of okay, well, if I get a full time job, maybe I can incorporate coaching at a local school or something like that. But at the forefront was, you know, my wife's going into more school, more debt, as we know, um, in this country with the education being it as as it is, and especially you know with her field again, she was going into more you know time racking up bills and, and student loan debt. And so I just tried to go the other direction of basically what can get me the most consistent work, start to make money, save for our future, that kind of thing. And sales seemed to be the opportunities that were on the table. So I jumped in. And so you spent some time in sales and it's, I know that you now do um, coaching specifically for veterinarians. And you've talked a little bit about yeah. how that happened with your with your wife being a veterinarian, you seeing the stress that she was under, but can you talk a little bit more about what caused you to actually want to make that your main focus of your career? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I spend a good amount of time talking about it with people these days because it's not only, you know, what's become more of a focus for me, but the, the reason for that is because it's become such a passion and just almost a necessity for me to do something um, to help um, the veterinary field is now either tied or, or first in terms of the highest rate of suicide of any profession, right up there with uh, dentists who are for a long time um, number one and still are, are right there. But it's not a it's not a race anybody wants to win. Right. And I have so many conversations with people these days who are just shocked, and their first question is why, and they're just flabbergasted that that this could be the case. And for me, it's it's the opposite because I went you know alongside my wife on this journey. And I could see along the way, 
all these kind of steps that build up to just stress and anxiety and some of the things I mentioned, but just so many reasons that people are overwhelmed and burdened. Um, and just to point to a couple of specifics, like I mentioned, the financial burden and debt, which, you know, many of us experience to some extent um, just by going to, you know, higher education, but it's just taken to another level in four years of veterinary school, uh, which is nowhere near as, uh, as uh, not minimally expensive, but nowhere near as feasible as uh, many other schools. And even my undergrad loans were, you know, a, a tiny decimal of what she came out with. And then, you know, when you look at comparing to the medical profession, right, somewhat similar in a way, uh, but human medicine, there's a lot more opportunity for rapid advancement in salaries and overall uh, earnings that there just isn't in the, in the veterinary field. So it's kind of a, a really tough, long, gradual process to get anywhere near um, what I would say, not financial freedom, but financial comfort even. And aside from that, there's some other factors we can go into, but do you have a question there? Oh yeah, no, I was just going to comment on how interest. I um, don't think that people, I know I didn't um, realize just how intense vet school actually is. And um, yeah. it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that way because it's, you know, it it's interesting how much stress veterinarians are under and how much they actually have on their shoulders that a lot of us don't even realize because we just think, I mean, my dog's my life, but she's still in it a pet. And it's crazy to think that the people who are caring for our loved ones in our furry loved ones are under so much stress mm -hmm. and have so limited access mm -hmm. to resources. Yeah. And it's a good point. I'm glad you brought that in because that's, I mean, I start with the financial, but it's just one piece of the puzzle and um, a bigger piece that on a daily day to day basis, kind of what you described um, because, you know, starting with them being in vet school where I, I saw the excessive hours of studying. Uh, I mean, we basically were on schedules where we saw each other for maybe 10 hours a week uh, because she was always in either class or um, in the library or studying somewhere for four years straight. And that continues in a lot of ways when you get on the job, you know, and this is not, again, not untrue of many other professions, but the extent to which it, it goes for veterinarians and then just keeps going. It's just kind of continuous. There's no break when, okay, we figure maybe after four years of studying, taking boards and all this pressure and, and continuous effort can kind of lead to, okay, now you need it. Now you're on the job. That's when the real hard work starts. And you kind of pointed to some of it of, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, you're there to care for and sometimes literally you know, be in life or death situations where you're providing care for uh, now, now your patient who can't speak to you, can't communicate what's wrong with them. You're getting kind of uh, misinformation sometimes, or at least incomplete information from the owner, the, you know, the representative of the, of the animal who they're just there to, again, get to the same result and get care. Uh, for for their loved ones, as you uh, well put it, their furry loved ones. But and everybody's working towards the same goal. But it's a tough thing to communicate back and forth. There's so much emotion involved on both sides, 
and there's just not a lot of easy, just easy opportunities to kind of accomplish the goal. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I had never thought about the, and, and I should have, but I had never thought about the emotional toll that it takes on somebody to have to put an animal down or tell a, um, tell an owner that they're going to have to put their animal down. Um, I've never had to be that through that personally. And I know that, you know, it's only a matter of time, unfortunately. And to be the person that has to break that news has to be emotionally taxing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is in a, in a way, and I think honestly, it's it's funny because most people go that that route where you went too. It's pretty logical that that's maybe the main source of a lot of people of of the stress. And it's funny, you you wouldn't think, but it's one of the things that gets most probably easy or manageable to deal with. Um, where really a lot of the stress sometimes isn't necessarily with. Uh, euthanasia just because it's such a, a logical thing for the doctor to basically be able to come to grips with it being a benefit at a certain point because it's just providing relief for suffering you know what I mean yeah that's a good point that's a good point and so what you said it is is not off base but it's actually just one of the more manageable parts of the job and when you think about it in that way it's like you're right to say there is a lot of stress and, and emotional uh, strain that comes with that, but I'm kind of just making the point of that's the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways, which is unfortunate because then you get into things like compassion fatigue, uh, which you know partially come from that, and it's a term that I I didn't learn until a couple of years ago, and part of this is going through coaching, but compassion fatigue is kind of at the forefront of the issue with the veterinary profession, and it's not just the euthanasia, but not even not even primarily the euthanasia, maybe, as much as it is just not being able to provide the ideal standard of medicine sometimes because it's not your decision to a certain point. It comes down to the owner um, deciding this is yeah, the course of treatment that I'll agree to, and here's where money comes in again. A lot of that is sometimes financially based. Well, you know, we have a trip to go on next week. I can't afford this surgery. And it's like that sometimes is a life or death thing. And, you know, it's not always a, a vacation. Sometimes it's, you know, your kids braces. I mean, there's a lot of real reasons and uh, issues why people can't um, make the decision, whether it's financially driven or otherwise, to pursue a certain course of medicine. But that's the thing is, is as a, a veterinarian or, you know, any of the staff in the hospital too, because I work with many people, not just vets, but and you know their staff members who are connected to this field it's a field of providing uh, care and treatment for a patient that's just not the decision maker or you know is that the is, is kind of at the will of people's whims and, and you know desires on a daily basis to a certain point and so it there's a lot of emotional compromise that comes into play. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to backtrack just a little bit because um, I share your concern for compassion fatigue. It's something that I had never really thought about until I got into the criminal defense field because it's a big problem in this field as well of caring about your clients 
end. Um, but I also think that it's something that exists in day-to-day situations that we don't even think of. Like the cliche statement yeah. of you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of somebody else and giving all of yourself to somebody else like a mother to her children. Can you talk about what compassion fatigue is and how it shows up in people's lives? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad that you brought it up too in different contexts because it's it's really it's honestly very subtle and very pervasive, especially in today's culture. And it affects, I think, many of us. And, and I'm, you know, I'm no stranger to this as well. It's like kind of you practice what you preach, uh, because of you know something like you said before, trial and error of realizing, wow, I, I I'm experiencing this, and people around me are experiencing this, and that's what kind of wakes you up to it. And I think compassion fatigue is something that's huge in these these days in people's day-to-day life, like you said, without them really even noticing sometimes. So to back up and just kind of define it more, compassion fatigue is essentially just, to put it a certain way, like draining your ability to empathize or sympathize. It's basically overexerting, you know, if there were an empathy muscle, so to speak, until you just have nothing left or you feel like you have nothing left to offer there. And like you put it well, if you have nothing left to offer, it doesn't just apply to others. It applies even more so to yourself. And so a lot of us and, and you know, veterans and others in many fields, I'm sure you, you know, you've experienced this and seen this in your field. And just basically anybody in a situation, right, where you're offering support, guidance, um, any kind of help from a place of, emotional connection or, or potential, you know, emotional connection, it's going to trigger that. It's going to, it's going to trigger emotional responses that, uh, you know, we manage to function, but still within us, psychologically, physiologically, that's still being strained. It's still being worked on. And so it fatigues literally like a muscle would, you know, when it's kind of, when you get into overtraining a muscle, overexerting, it just wears down. And that's where, if you think about it in a simple context, like people getting jaded, we use that term for a long time. A lot of that is tied to what we now describe as compassion fatigue. It's just kind of losing the ability or, or energy to exert caring. And when you're in a caregiving profession, that's not only traumatic for what you have to do on a daily basis, but it's traumatic for you as the caregiver. And that's where this all comes back to people feeling really just awful, to put it bluntly. Yeah. I I like that explanation so much. And I know that I'm going to put you in a tough spot right now because this is a very difficult question to answer. And I know that there's not a one size fits all answer for everybody, but if you could give somebody um, a starting point to make sure that they're taking care of themselves and avoiding compassion fatigue, what do you think is one of the most important self-care things they can do? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question and it is something I'm trying more and more to answer for people these days. I think the first thing, it's like anything else, just being aware, just trying to notice it. So it, it's really difficult, especially for people in this position, to start noticing it in themselves, if not impossible. So I'll say this, it's maybe an easier way to start. Look at the people close to you, the people you're connected to, especially if they're in similar situations, like if they're a coworker or somebody who's experiencing the same type of situational factors and stresses. Look at somebody who is maybe similar to you or really close to you. And start to try to notice signs in them first and foremost, because that's probably an easier way to start. 
And especially I give this advice to many people in the situation when you're when you're that helper, you're that caregiver, you're that person who always looks to support others first. It's easier to do this and it's more but you know, kind of reinforcing for you and, and beneficial for you, so to speak, because it's something you want to do, right? It's if you're in a position to start noticing and possibly helping somebody close to you, you know, start there. And I say start close to you because the closer you start to you, the more it will come back to you and you can kind of help each other in this way. But at the end of the day, um, you, you know, you mentioned self-care. That's what it's really all about. Because if you can start with yourself, you should. That's the best way to do it. And, you know, I, I give my, my wife this advice somewhat jokingly, but honestly, not, not jokingly. I give her this advice all the time of just try, try to be selfish try to make an effort to be more self-centered. Um, and I say it that way very bluntly and very poignantly because she couldn't do it if she tried. It would take forever. She's been training her whole life to be selfless and to be you know, empathetic towards others first and foremost. But making the effort in the other direction, honestly, will kind of balance out the scales a little bit. And that's what it takes is when you're kind of overtraining a muscle, you have to go the other direction and kind of start to, to backtrack and undertrain a little bit to give it some rest so it let it recharge so to speak yeah and i love that you mentioned that one of the hardest things that i ever had to learn was that saying no and doing something that was best for me wasn't selfishness because i was the same way like my entire life was about other people and i felt no or i felt bad when i would say no to take care of myself and felt like i was being mm -hmm. selfish and i love yeah. that you say you know what just be selfish be a little bit selfish because that's the only way you get to take care of yourself yeah yeah and i don't i don't even go as far as to say it that way most of the time people say oh i don't want to do that i'll say just try because you'll fail but failing to do it when you're you know someone who doesn't want to do it anyway it's going to be a positive effort because uh, you know you're not going to become selfish and that's why i say it to her it's like when she rolls her eyes at me you know which she doesn't do as much anymore um, <laughs> but when i would say this it's like be selfish it's like you're telling somebody who that's their their greatest you know it's fear or just uh dislike is oh, i would never be selfish that's not someone I'd... yeah so try to do it because you'll fail and in the effort you'll just get a little bit less selfish selfless in a way that's just easier to maintain. Yeah. yeah, and I think that what we all learn is that when you start taking care of yourself, you actually, and I know you kind of touched on this a little bit, but you actually have more ability to be compassionate and to be better at your job and to be exactly. a, better, a better treatment provider or you know whatever your profession is. Like when you take that time to give yourself what you need, you become better for everybody around you. It's, it's really well said. Because it's, it, yeah, it's, it's something where if you're doing anything that you're kind of over exerting at, by trying harder, you're just going to undo more of your own work. Like you're not going to be more effective by trying harder when you've already tried hard enough. By trying less hard, you'll find a more comfortable balance and probably be more effective at doing it. Absolutely. So I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned something um, earlier that I wanted to touch on and we kind of um, got on such a great topic, but you talked about your relationship while you were, while your wife was in vet school. And I know when I went to law school, the first semester, they actually had a class for significant others where they brought mm -hmm. them in and said, this is what life in law school is going to be like. And so I'm interested mm -hmm. to know how so much cool. you actually like how much of your practice you work with people 
in a relationship setting, maybe not relationship coaching, but like it all spans over into your relationships. And I can imagine that it's a huge stressor on a relationship to be in that field. So how do you handle that with your clients? Absolutely. It's a really good point you bring up. Um, and that to me, it's, it's kind of part of all of it, you know, even if uh, I'm working with somebody one-on-one and, and life coaching in general, right? It's, it's when you talk about life, coaching it's someone's life it's, it's anything and everything gets involved so even if I'm working with someone one-on-one all of their relationships that are significant to them come into uh you know overtly in the conversation or more you know implicitly it's all connected and it's all affected so that being said um in a one-on-one sense yeah it's, it's addressed and and more than that um I do love to and some of the some of what we're doing right now you know not only myself but the team that I'm working with is incorporating more collective activity, um, whether it's, you know, not necessarily always, you know, two-on-one, like, relationship-focused coaching, which I actually have um, close partners who do that as well. But for me personally, it's more in kind of a group setting, sometimes a casual setting, sometimes more of just a group kind of support environment, but just getting people together along with their partners, because that is such a core element here. And, you know, whether it's um, you know, husband and wife or intimate partners or even just a close friend or, or relative or supporter, we all have kind of a partnership or, you know, a couple partnerships in our lives that really affect us um, in every way, um, emotionally and, and otherwise uh, on a daily basis. And so a lot of what I do is just making different types of efforts to, you know, whether it's coaching, whether it's uh, support groups that we're facilitating, or even just kind of social events, you know, activities. And my wife and I actually, I are actually working, my wife and I are working um, along with uh, another couple members um, in kind of a team effort and Vets for Life, which is the, you know, coaching and coaching and, and other resources that I provide is tied into this team that I'm calling Vets for Life now. And it represents not just the coaching that I provide, but some of these other things I mentioned too, we're doing more engaging activities with the veterinary community um, in sometimes just a social setting. Like in a few weeks, we're going bowling and we're doing it as a you know fundraiser of sorts, but it's just really to get people in an environment where they're more comfortable, more relaxed, along with partners and with other people they're connected to that, you know, a lot of our time is spent with work or the pressures of work kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, infecting our time together and to, to remove some of that and just get together in a more positive, constructive setting is a real big focus right now. I love it. I want to switch gears just a little bit and move into the content segment of the podcast where we talk about success and fulfillment. And I think this ties directly into what you do. Um, and just to get the conversation started off, I want to ask how you define success and how that's changed for you throughout the course of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely changed, I would say, um, in, in at least in how I describe it. But to first give the most simple definition I can, and as you might know by now, I'm not a, a simple, straightforward uh, explanation type of guy, but I'll, I'll do my best here. So <laughs> success, I would say, is basically achieving the desired result that you're looking to. That definitely has changed for me over the course of my life in terms of what it means and how it applies. But realistically, I think the description has always held true. To me, doing something successfully was just 
achieving what you set out to achieve. And as, so that leads me directly into my next question then, because I feel like these two terms get confused so often, and I would love your input on the relationship between success and fulfillment. Do you think that success comes first followed by fulfillment or that fulfillment comes first followed by success or that they are unrelated? That's interesting. I really like that you make this distinction. And I do think, um, I guess if I were to put it in a, a kind of A, A and B, what comes first, um, maybe it's a little bit chicken or the egg, but I would say at least in perception, success often comes first. And to me, success is more the result, like the observable result of an action, um, which can be also shared a lot with, uh, with people. If you think about team success or just, you know, two parties where one success is another's failure, so to speak, success to me is a more outward uh, result that can be observed. And when you say fulfillment, in my, my description, I would say that's more the kind of internal feeling or uh, resulting kind of connection to something on more of a, a core level. Um, I use this term, and actually this is a title of a, a podcast I'm running with a cohort of mine, uh, The Fundamental Imperative. It basically just describes kind of the most base instinct level of motivation. And so the fundamental imperative, that, that base level motivation, to me is what fulfillment more uh, satiates, so to speak, or satisfies. It's kind of that internal core feeling that, you know, we each experience in totally different ways and you can't really um, understand completely how somebody else experiences it. And that's kind of the nuance and the beauty of it in a way. But it comes from, to me, more of an external uh, result that ties to success. So I think they are distinctly uh, different, but very interrelated things. I love that answer so much. And it's interesting. This is why I love asking this question so much, because for me, they're very, um, they're very related. And I expected everybody else to say the same thing. And then the more I ask that question, you know, I get so many varieties of answers that I love so much. Um, It's a great question. Yeah, I love I, I love your answer so much. So this podcast is all about defining your own idea of success and kind of figuring out what that means for you. So as you're working with your clients, because I'm sure that this is a, a conversation that comes up in your coaching business, as you're working with your clients and they say to you, you know, I just don't, I just don't know what my next steps are, and they're trying to figure out how to live their best life where's your starting point with them? So if somebody's out there just feeling completely lost, what's a starting point for them to try to figure out where, where their life should go? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And for me, I mean, you heard me talk about this a little bit at the Unleash You conference. For me, my perspective nowadays, I've seen and felt so many kind of connections and, and situations that reinforce this concept for me. I look at it as everyone is always living their best life to the best of their ability. You know, we're affected and, and maybe limited, so to speak, by whether it's beliefs or circumstances or what have you. But to me, that doesn't mean we're not acting or, or being successfully. It's just, you know, how it's being perceived or interpreted, which is important because when I'm working with somebody and they're looking for something or we're trying to work on something or experiencing, you know, negative results or feelings, uh, to me, it, it's 
a healthy and, and functional way to look at it of me personally knowing, that doesn't mean they're not being successful. It means they're not feeling successful. They're not interpreting what they're doing as successful. But so that's what we're working on. It's not what they're necessarily doing wrong, so to speak. It's what they're not seeing or experiencing in what they are doing that is positive. So where I start is to try to help identify, you know, what, so what are you experiencing? What are you interpreting the situation? And then pinpoint it just so we can kind of shift that to, all right, take that, work with it, but to more focus on and apply what are you doing successfully or what could you be doing that you're not realizing that can get you more of the return on your investment, so to speak, that um, understanding or perception that you are working successfully and then continue further on that track. You know, that's such an important point. And um, I talk about this a lot, but I've never heard it explained exactly like that, which I, I really like. Um, that so many times we change things in our lives thinking that that's what's making us feel unhappy or whatever term you want to put in there. And then that thing changes. And particularly, it normally falls with jobs or relationships. That thing changes and you still feel the same way because that wasn't really the problem. And I love that you mm -hmm. said that it's not what you're doing. It's the way you're interpreting what you're, what you're accomplishing that makes you either feel successful or not feel successful. And tapping into that, I think, is so important. Um, so as far as your clients are concerned, do you stay in the veterinary field? Do you um, branch out of that? Or what kind of what's your target client? Um, yeah, it's, it's um, definitely not something I'm exclusively doing. Um, it actually came... You know, when I started my coaching journey, um, it came far after. It was most of the, one of the most recent developments, I would say, in my coaching focus is to kind of cater to that field. Um, and it was it was one of those things I, I was saying that a lot of times the aha moments are, are more like duh moments of why wasn't I doing this already? Um, but after, like I said, kind of going through secondarily um, experiencing the, the veterinary track, it just became more and more apparent over time. It was such a group that was in need of what coaching could do and um just right kind of there in front of me to to work towards uh, but that being said while it's always been um right there in a way i i guess the the way i started did lead me this direction of when you kind of find whether it's coaching or anything right you find something valuable and especially I, i'm sure you can relate to this too with coaching it's something that like psychology applies to anyone or anything pretty much. So when you find it and you find what it does for you, because going through the experience of, you know, being trained and certified and practiced in it, it it's a very, very deep experience, probably the most um, developmental experience I've had in my life, certainly my, my adult life for myself. You know, we talked before about um, you, you look to help yourself last. Coaching was the one place where, um, and I say place, I mean, it was the one kind of experience and environment where I was most more focused on probably myself, my own development without realizing it um, than I had ever been before. And when I went through that process and experienced the value of it, the first thing I wanted to do is share it and provide it for the people closest to me and around me, you know, the people I care for the most. So I, you know, would come home like I was a kid again um, from, you know, a, a module and a three-day training 
or just even a webinar or a call or, you know, studying some new tool or concept. And one of the first things I would do is, you know, talk to my wife about it of, oh, you know, this interesting or effective uh, strategy that um, helps with coping here and there. And so I started, you know, just talking to the people around me about it and building out from there. And obviously my wife being part of this veterinary field, it kind of spread a little bit organically to where, you know, other friends and coworkers of hers in the field uh, started to catch on to some things. But for me then it was just, you know, bringing this back to something we talked, touched on a, a few times now, relationships. My first um, focus of uh, specialty or niche uh, coming out of, you know, school and, and training was relationship coaching. That was always at the core of kind of my priorities in life, so to speak. Interesting. And, yeah. And so everything I'm doing now, you, you know, even the, the vet focus with Vets for Life, um, but beyond that is, is kind of all connected to that lens, the lens of relationships for me. I kind of view everything in the world to some extent through that framework. And even you mentioned a, a huge um, thing for, for a lot of people is career. I, I view that as a relationship. You know, we give, unfortunately for many of us, it's, it's our primary relationship in our lives in terms of what, what we're connected to and focused on more than anything else uh, in terms of actual time and energy. And sometimes, and that builds to, you know, emotional connection too. When we think about things like compassion fatigue, it's like you're, we're so invested in our careers and our job. It is a relationship that we are giving uh, time, attention, and, and emotional energy towards. And to treat it as such, it, it is something that I actually work a lot with people on, and I'm sure you, you do tutors, whatever extent, is managing that relationship in ways that are healthy for us. You know, that's so amazing. And I love that you um, compared careers to a relationship because I'd never thought about that before, but I like it a lot. Mm. Well, we're getting ready to wrap up. And before we end, I would like to give an opportunity um, to the listeners to get to know you a little bit better through a quick random round. Are you okay with that? Sure. Perfect. Um, what profession other than your own do you think would be fun to attempt? Ooh, well, I mentioned a couple earlier um, in terms of athletics and creative arts. I'd say, you know, what, I'm going to go with acting. Um, my brother actually is an actor and I've always um, loved that, um, that he's doing it. I kind of had it in mind being young um, to try it out. I think that'd be a uh, fun, interesting, and uh, crazy to attempt, but uh, that'd be cool. That's cool. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and why? Wow, that's a tricky one. Um, so I'd definitely go to the past, I'll say. Um, I'm big on like the origins of things, origin stories. So um, I mean, there's a lot there if you're looking at the past. But I'll say maybe, the, you know, it'd be really interesting for me, the origin of kind of the human uh, species as we know it. I, I'm sure I could set a lot of debates, a lot of debates. Um, and <laughs> internally, I'd find it satisfying if I kind of figured it out or, or came to learn. This is how, uh, how things really came to be in terms of the human race as we know it. That's such a good point. And we could settle so many debates and so many arguments. Um, what personality trait has been most helpful for you throughout your life? Personality trait, I, I guess being uh, thoughtful. I think that's kind of a cheating answer for me because I mean it in, in dual ways is I think a lot 
and also I, I tend to be like thoughtful towards others. So okay. My twofold answer. <laughs> Perfect. And do you prefer reading physical books or listening to audiobooks? Uh, I appreciate audiobooks a lot, and they're very um, easy to incorporate nowadays. Uh, and functionally speaking, I appreciate them, but absolutely would rather read a physical book if given the opportunity. Me too. Um, yeah. What are if you could gift a book to somebody, knowing that it would um, significantly impact their life? What book would you gift? Oh, well, I have. Um, I don't know if it, it counts as one book as a series, but um, I will say, and I back this up with it was the um, so one caveat, and I'll say deal breaker um, for my wife before we got married that she had to read the entire series of Harry Potter. Okay. Okay. I love the mm-hmm. Harry Potter books so much. Um, we actually like, we got an opportunity at my ALA national conference to go to, um, Orlando studios and they rented out, um, the Harry Potter world for like a couple of hours for all of us. And it was amazing. So, so much you mm-hmm. can learn from those books. I like it. Um, and it's, it's definitely a commitment, but for uh, sure. Well, for sure. Um, I'm a music nerd, so I always have to ask everybody, what song motivates you right now? What's your pump-up song? Huh, that's a good question. I, I, see, I'm obsessed with music and always have been, so I have so many answers I could put in here, but to the current time frame, actually, um, you might have heard it. So I, had, I was put on the spot at the Unleash You conference, not realizing I was going to have to pick a, walk, um, a song to walk out to, an intro music, uh, which I picked about five minutes before I went on. And it was um, Macklemore, um, Glorious. Yes. Yes, I remember that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a big one for me to do. I love it. Do you have a morning routine? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, I would say I do. It's hard to kind of describe because my, my routines are, are very uh, kind of abstract and not as straightforward. Um, I, I definitely start each day by doing something we, we talked about before, like self-care, just kind of maintenance of, you know, I'll get up and try to, before anything else, kind of do a little bit of uh, physical activity, which um, for me nowadays is a little bit limited in terms of time and, and physical constraint. But, you know, whether it's just, it's just stretching or meditating or doing a little aerobic um, workout to kind of get the blood flowing. And right before or after that, um, have a little bit of food to get uh, metabolism going to just kind of get my body ready for the day is the first thing I focus on. And while that's all that's happening, my my brain tends to be the first thing that wakes up and gets going on its own. So as I kind of settle into uh, finishing those activities, I'll just approach my day from a more kind of strategic or planning standpoint of, you know, what am I going to get done today? And go from there. I love it. All right. And last but not least, where can people track you down if they want to connect? Where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, this is um, an interesting one because I have a lot uh, a lot of different avenues and things going on. So we didn't really talk about this, but I actually um, recently, um, or for a while now, I've been cultivating a uh, community of sorts. It's a big word that's getting thrown around nowadays, but for me, it means um, a website, which is Find Our True North. Dot com. Okay. And that to me is kind of the hub of everything I'm doing. It connects to Vest for Life, like I said, a, a coaching 
for the vet profession, but also connect to, you know, me personally, my bio, kind of my story, um, and the people closest to me that I'm associated with, who I work in tandem with. That's kind of the, the hub of everything that I'm doing nowadays. Perfect. So that's just findourtruenorth.com? And um, I also will mention just the website for uh, Veterinarians for Life, which is Vets for Life. It's a full name kind of uh, spelled out is veterinariansforlife.com. And for anybody uh, connected to the vet industry, that is uh, more directly where, where you could find what we're focusing on within the vet profession. And, um, you know, again, there on there is contact info. Um, definitely um, content and abilities to reach out and, and engage with us. And happy to welcome anybody and, and everybody out there who wants to connect or engage anytime. I'm always, as you know, and I, I know you're this way as well, always open to a good conversation. And especially when it can go towards uh, positive action or, or help to, you know, anybody out there, my, myself even, I always find it beneficial. Absolutely. Um, I, I love connecting and, and I'm drawn towards people who like to connect as well. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on and share some amazing insight with the listeners. Thank you for, for um, taking some time out of your day. Oh, absolutely. It was a time off, but I enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. This was fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the show. I hope that something that was said resonated with you or provided value to you in one way or another. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on the show. You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Amber Furman. Also, I've created a Facebook community for followers of the show to interact with me and other members of the community. You can find that on Facebook at More Than Corporate. So go ahead and join that group if you'd like to stay up to date on podcast happenings and meet some really cool people. Again, thanks so much for tuning in.